Well, good morning again. Yeah, as Allison was saying, it was just one of those weeks where I uh, ended up having a little bit too much on my plate, and so I, I acknowledge that and repent of that. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want I don't want emails coming in later, be like Justin, I'm worried about you. I'm I'm okay. Today's a busy day, and I'll rest well tomorrow. I promise. Okay. <laughs> So just before, yeah, just before, because I know what some of you are thinking, because you care about me, and I love that. But um, and on top of that, Alex, being away this week, decided to give me one of the most famously controversial pieces of scripture ever. So he's like, hey, Justin, I'm away. Here's and actually, so a couple weeks ago, we did like this recap, which initially I was supposed to be preaching on something totally different. And because we added in this recap a little bit last minute, um, I got stuck with the flood. Hey, so in this story, we're dealing with a passage for some reason that's been plastered on the walls of, of kids ministries around the world. Um, inexplicably, I would say. We're dealing with a passage that has parallel stories in nearly every, uh, every ancient religion in the Near East. We're dealing with really the next major movement. In fact, if you look at these first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is really the, 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 what we're dealing with, we're dealing, we're going into uh, the Abrahamic covenant in a few weeks, but ultimately we are um, dealing with Genesis 1 through 11 as these foundational pieces of our story and God's story. But this occupies nearly four chapters of those 11 chapters. And so as you can imagine, we're not going to spend 15 minutes, even though that might be a good idea. You can do that on your own time. We're going to zoom through the narrative a little bit and kind of try to capture the essence of the story, try to figure out where we're going to go with it. And I'll just state up front that this is a challenging piece of scripture, not one that we should take lightly and not one that we should ignore. It has something to say to us today in the 21st century. But before we go any further, I'd like to just pray and just allow God just to seep into our souls. God, thank you for your word, even when it is difficult, even when it presents uh, places of, of discomfort. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Yeah, Lord, would we just be able to, by your spirit, absorb what we need to absorb, to hear what we need to hear? God, would you, would you speak through your word as you, as you have for thousands of years? We ask you to do that again this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. So last week we heard the story of, uh, of Cain killing Abel and the, this continual downward spiral from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And I have a little spoiler alert, it doesn't get any better. Um, and before we get there though, I just want to kind of cover a couple of things because um, in between the Cain and Abel story, there's a few things that happen that I don't, I don't want to just like cast them aside. Um, so I'm going to do like a little kind of a, a catch up to, to where we are now. So Adam and Eve, after Cain killed Abel, um, Cain separated his uh, separate. He went his separate way and uh, we never really hear from him again. We, we, you know, bless him. We hope we wish him well, but he's off on his own now. Adam and Eve have uh, conceived a new child. His name is Seth. 
And it is from this child's descendants, the descendants of Seth, that the story continues on. And chapter 5, it has, uh, it's just basically a whole long genealogy. There's some really interesting bits in there that if you want to dive in, um, it's great to do so. But for our purposes this morning, we're not going to be reading from the genealogy. But at the end of, the, of chapter 5, we see a man named Lamech, and he becomes the father of a man, of a man named Noah. And then there's this very odd story. I don't know how many of you have read, how many of you have like a Bible plan where you read through the Bible in a year or something kind of like that, a handful of you? Um, if not, I really encourage you to do that. It's a really beautiful and powerful thing to, to get through, um, you know, over the course of a period of time to make sure we touch on every single part of scripture because it's all important. But there are some things that are, are a little weird. Can we just, can we just admit that? There's some weird things. So at the beginning of chapter six here, um, there's this very odd story and we don't have time to give it its full measure here. Um, but if we were in like a seminary class, we'd have a lot of fun kind of pontificating over this. It's the story of what chapter six refers to as the Nephilim. Anyone heard of the, the Nephilim before? There's a handful of you. Yeah, it's not very widely known. Um, the be- <laughs> scholars debate over and over again about all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is um, that there are these seemingly angelic beings. They call them, in some cases, the sons of God, um, who intermarried and bore children with the women of the earth. And like I said, scholars kind of have lots of different theories about what this is. Um, but I, I think we can glean some things without having to get into that. And what I would say is, is this. It acts as a bit of a hinge kind of before the, the Cain and, sorry, the Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve line. And it acts as a bit of a hinge in between that and the flood story. It's giving us some hints as to the problems of the world and what eventually led to the flood. It's looking at disordered desires and disordered creation. Just disorder and chaos. In general, that you have continuing depravity, that these that these heavenly beings were not to be intermarrying and and having kids with uh, with these women. This was something that was out of the order of creation. And it gives us a little bit of a, a precursor to what's about to happen. So anyway, with that out of the way. You can do some studying on your own time. It's fascinating. It's like, it's pretty crazy. So, um, let's read the story of Noah. We're going to be starting at verse, uh, chapter six, verse five. Um, just a note that I'm going to be, um, just for the sake of brevity, because we have, like, as we have a lot of text, I'm going to be, um, kind of skipping over the, the measurements of the boats. Um, just because, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made humans, human beings on the earth and that in his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. 
And he walked faithfully with God. Just a quick side note. If you read in uh, the, the genealogy in the chapter before, it says the same thing of Enoch, that Enoch walked with the Lord. There's a little bit of a parallel there. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all of the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life from under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark and you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creature, male and female, to keep them with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come uh, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a few things here that are, are critical for understanding what's happening. Throughout this whole story, I want you to have um, what I'm going to call like our, our spidey sense. Um, you guys know what that is, like from Spider-Man, like where we just, every time they mention something, there's a good chance that there is a little illusion happening back to Genesis 1 to 3. So I want us to be aware of that as we're reading. I want us to be um, good hearers of the word because there's some really cool stuff happening here. Specifically, we should be thinking about how the world in Genesis 1, it describes it in this Hebrew phrase of tohu bohu, which is wild and waste, the uh, voidless, uh, the formless void, I should say. And a part of taming this earth in Genesis 1 was God separating the waters and making land inhabitable. Land was, land was good and water was chaotic and scary and filled with the unknown. And God is describing something in this flood narrative. He's describing basically a reversal of that. He's saying, you know, in Genesis 1, it was, um, I'm going to create land and, and make, push the waters aside. Um, in this case, I'm bringing the waters back. So he's describing something of a, of a reversal and that it was not ultimately God. This is really important. I want us to hear this very well this morning. It was not ultimately God, but humans that were responsible for their destruction. As described in verse 11, we have this picture of a violent, hostile, chaotic world that has in fact destroyed itself. Uh, Mary Phil Corsak, she's a, a brilliant theologian, and she kind of has this beautiful um, translation that she wrote of, of all of Genesis. And this is the way that she describes it. The earth had been destroyed before the Elohim, before God. The earth was filled with violence. Elohim saw the earth. Here, it had been destroyed. For all flesh had destroyed its way on earth. So when we talk about the destruction of humanity, it's, it's worth noting again that this happened. They were destroying each other. They, the world was in ruin. That is what is being described here. The picture that came to my mind was um, a, a house that, was, that has been trashed by a party. When I was, when I was younger, um, 
I was usually like a pretty good boy. Um, but when I, so when I was, uh, I was 20, 20, 21, I think, um, I, I lived with some friends. Um, it was Stephen Elaine Taylor's sons, <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and, a, and a few others. We had a town home. And, uh, and we decided to host a New Year's Eve party. Um, and, and I, being the overly responsible person that I am, I was very cautious in my, in my alcohol intake so that I could be the, the person that was like vigilant at every turn, making, making sure that, that our house was not being destroyed because it wasn't our house. Um, and so, uh, but inevitably I, I had to fall asleep because I was just, I was exhausted. It was probably about three in the morning. And, of course, I wake up, and what do I find? The house has been trashed. It, was, it wasn't like that bad, but it was still not great. <laughs> and so I surveyed the land, so to speak, and I started the hard work of kicking people out and cleaning the house and tracking down the iPod that someone had stolen. Um, yeah, it was one of those. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if you guys knew about that, Stephen Elaine. No. <laughs> Uh, we're going, we're going back a few years <laughs> in this same way, God is surveying the land. It's not like he was asleep. He was aware of what was happening. Not like, so it's not a perfect analogy, but God is surveying the land and seeing what has become of his creation, his very good creation. And he's seeing they've, they've destroyed it. They've wrecked it. They've, they've killed themselves effectively. The flood is, in a way, it is a story of God's justice and God's judgment. But interestingly, often what God does in his judgment is he's giving people over to their disordered desires. It's their wills that they already have. The world has become chaotic and hostile, and God was determined to bring to fruition what the inhabitants had already willed themselves to do. It's kind of asking the question, oh, you guys want chaos and a world without boundaries. Here is chaos and a world without boundaries. And this is that idea of a reversal of creation. We'll return to that formless void, the tohu bohu, the wild and waste of Genesis 1. This can be seen as a cleansing act. Uh, water in ancient mythology was instilled fear in people. Um, it also symbolized purification and cleanse. We also see this remarkable statement of God's regret, God's sorrow, God's grief, God's God laments and grieves over what has become of his good world. And I would say that human words, they are unable to when we think about like emotions and um, and descriptions of God in this way, they're, they're inaccurate. They're only like really metaphors of what we can really understand what God was going through in that moment. All we know is that a perfect and holy God saw this level of depravity, depravity and it crushed him inside. He was grieved at this very good world that had become devoid of all that was good. But the story is not totally hopeless because we find out there is a righteous remnant, a man named Noah. Interestingly, the, the, the word Noah is Nuach. Everyone say Nuach. Get the little 
Yeah, that's right. And um, there's a beautiful correlation there between uh, uh, Sabbath or Shabbat and Nuach, which is Nuach, Nuach is rest. So we got Sabbath, which is to stop, and we have Nuach, which is rest. Um, and there's this sense that Noah was fulfilling his name by bringing rest to this chaotic land. He's described as someone who's blameless and upright, that he and his family had found favor in God's eyes. He was a man described as righteous, someone who walked with God, and, and that describes this, this closeness, this intimacy with God. And the fact that the Bible describes him as, as righteous is really, really important. Some translations use the word just, that he was a just man. And to do the work of justice and the work of righteousness, that actually means that you must be interacting with the people around you. We don't do justice in a silo. I can't be a just person if I'm kind of cloistered over here doing my thing. That's not the way justice and righteousness works. It is done in partnership with God and others. And in this case, this was a man, Noah, who amid all of this chaos and the violence around him, he was someone who did justice and righteousness around the people he was with. God is going to use Noah as a new Adam of sorts. And Noah did everything that God called him to do. So they gather the animals as they're told. This is uh, as described in, in the seventh chapter of Genesis. And interestingly, um, they're called not to bring just two pairs or one pair of, of each animal. It says God gets more specific in, Gen- in Genesis 7. And he says, no, no, I want you to actually all the clean animals, all like the, you know, the cows, the sheep, the goats, all that kind of stuff. I want you to bring seven pairs of those. I, I kind of glazed over that at some point. And then this week, Allison and I were reading it together. We're like, whoa, seven pairs. That's kind of cool. Um, it's the number of completion, the number of perfection. Seven pairs of the clean creatures and one pair of each unclean creature. You know, usually on our, like, you know, kids, like, murals where we have this depiction, it's always, like, the, the giraffes and the elephants and the lions that get all, like, the attention. But really, it was probably a, lo- a lot of sheep and cows and boring creatures. Um, sorry to burst everyone's bubble. <laughs> and once the animals had entered the ark, they went in the ark themselves but they waited seven days before anything actually happens. Seven days. So if you can imagine, the ark is full. They go on to the boat and they're just waiting. They're like, okay, I guess it's going to happen now. And then one day goes by, one day goes by. And then you got to imagine that Noah is kind of like, oh, I see what's happening here. Seven. I'm going to be waiting here seven days. Now, I'll be the first to say that this isn't explicitly indicated in the text. But some people believe that this was, this this seven-day period, this was another opportunity for people to repent and join Noah. Think about it. They're on the boat. The gate is still open. The door is still open. You have to imagine that people saw crazy old Noah building the ark for years and that they would have jeered at him. But Noah remained faithful. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in the book of Second Peter chapter 2, it describes him as a preacher of righteousness or a herald of righteousness, which means that he was sharing um, what God had told him to share with the people around him. Noah would have had a message for these people, and I'm sure they all thought he was nuts. I could imagine a wor- the word spreading pretty quickly about this, about the guy building a stadium-sized boat and for the, and, and then an impending flood. So there they are in the boat, door wide open for seven days before anything actually happens. 
It's as if God is saying to his people, there's still time to turn. There's still time. It's an act of grace that was ultimately not reciprocated, though. To use a similar nautical analogy, um, I think of a sinking ship like the Titanic, where there were people, I don't know if this is real, but I think it was in the movie or something, where like people that are like, oh, no, the, the ship's not going to sink. It's going to be fine. This is the unsinkable ship. And so they, you know, everyone else is getting on, you know, the lifeboats to get the heck out of there. And, and, and they're like, no, no, we're going to be fine. And then by the time they realize it's not going to be fine, it's too late. And after those seven days, it says in Genesis seven sixteen that God himself shut the door. It's a simple parental loving touch in the midst of a scenario. He's saying, I'm not going to make you close the door. I'm going to close the door for you. And so now they wait. The waters that God had separated in Genesis 1 now deluge all over the land. A world without boundaries. The very thing that their corrupted and and, uh, violent hearts wanted is exactly what God did. A world without boundaries. And so it rains 40 days and 40 nights. It's another important number in 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 the Christian and Jewish tradition. It ultimately represents a period of trial. Think about 40 40 years wandering in the desert. Moses on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days. Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. Elijah on Mount Horeb for 40 days and there's more. So rain, 40 days, 40 nights. And the flooding persists for months and months and months on end. Genesis 8.1. Genesis 8.1, it says that God remembered Noah. Now you might be like, did God forget about Noah? No. That's not what that means. When it says that, you often read this in the Psalms where it says, you know, Lord, remember me, remember me. It's not, it's not saying that God has forgotten about someone, but that rather it is about God preparing to act and to move in his faithful love toward Noah. That's what the psalmists, when they write, Lord, remember me, they don't, they don't think God's forgotten. They're saying, you know, God, I want you to act, do something, show up, do something. So God is preparing to act and to move in faithful love toward Noah. And he acts by sending a wind over the earth to recede the flood. And again, our, our spidey senses that I talked about earlier, that, that they should be tingling right here. We should be thinking about Genesis 1. So the chaos of the flood is over. God sends a wind over the waters. Where have we heard that before? In Genesis 1, God sends his spirit to hover over the waters. It's the same word, ruach. So what's happening? The decreation is over. So the reversal of creation is now done. And now we are back in the business of recreation. Recreation. So the spirit of God hovers over the water and pushes back the flood. And the boat nestles up against the, mount, the, the mountainside of Mount Ararat. And to test if there's any dry land... Noah first sends out, sends out a raven, and the raven never comes back. Jerk. <laughs> and then he sends out a dove, which I think is like, you know, I don't know whether this is like a condemnation of ravens versus doves, but either way, um, I think doves are, are generally seen to be a nicer bird than ravens. Um, he sends out a dove, and the dove comes back with an olive branch. There's kind of two beautiful symbols happening there. The dove is this animal, it's a symbol of peace itself. And an olive branch, also a symbol of peace, but it's also a sign, it's a sign that new life is blooming. 
that the recreation is happening. They can finally get off the boats. And when they get off, we really get to see Noah and his family as this new humanity that God calls them and the animals to be fruitful and to multiply. Again, our spidey senses should be tingling that we may have seen that a few times in Genesis 1. After all said and done, Noah and God establish a covenant together. Noah starts by building an altar, a way of commemorating God's faithfulness and God's remembering of him to his, him and his family. And then in Genesis 9, we read these words. Genesis 9, starting at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. What makes this especially beautiful is that most covenants are between God and an exclusive people. In this case, this is a covenant that is completely universal, not only to all of humanity, but to the creatures themselves. Every living thing, God makes this covenant with them. Also, is very significant when God uses the rainbow as a sign. We love rainbows. They're beautiful. I know that, you know, it's like when there's a beautiful rainbow in the sky, you always see like cars pulled over so they can like take a picture. It's this, it's this wonderful sign. It's beautiful. And God is in effect saying, when you see this, you will be reminded of my covenantal promise. But even more than that, there's um, the word rainbow. It's the exact same in Hebrew as the word bow, like as in like a bow and arrow kind of bow. It has the connotation of a weapon. A war bow. And it's almost as if God is saying, I have established a ceasefire. I've set my war bow aside. God's war with sin and corruption at a universal level ends here. And I stress at a universal level, because obviously there are still battles and challenges and things that happen in the generations to come. But something at this cataclysmic level will never, ever be seen. So, we doing Okay. What could a story like this possibly mean for us in the 21st century? I think there's a couple things. The first is that our actions have consequences beyond simply ourselves. The cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now, it seems to assume this idea that as long as our actions do not expressly hurt someone else, that they are ethically or morally acceptable. The story reminds us that our actions, in a sense, have a cosmic impact. That everything we do 
good, bad, neutral, it has a ripple effect to the world around us. Our choices affect others and the very cosmos itself. There's a comedy show um, called The Good Place. Anyone watch The Good Place? It's it's a very unique show. Um, it's it's a comedy, but it's it's very intellectual. I feel it. There's a it's a source of a lot of ethical and philosophical and uh, even theological discussion for me. And in one episode, they explore the complex uh, moral landscape that we find ourselves in, in 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 our world today. And they use the simple example of a tomato. So just bear with me for a second. There's a little quote here. They say this, these days, just buying a tomato at the grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think they're making one choice. They go to the store and they buy a tomato, but they're making dozens of choices they don't even realize they're making. And I don't want us to get caught up in any of the minutia of that. That's not the point. I'm not here to, to argue about pesticides or not pesticides or whatever. Um, that's not the point. As followers of Jesus, we have a duty to help in the flourishing of the world, humans, plants, animals, all of it. And this is a clear mandate given to us. I preached on that at the end of September. And a part of that means thinking deeply about all of our choices. Are we adding to the decay and the destruction or the decreation of the world in the way that humanity did in Noah's day? Or are we bringing life? Are we bringing flourishing? And maybe that means we have to think more deeply about where we source our tomatoes from. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, maybe it means we, have, we need to think about how, you know, how often we eat meat. Again, I don't want to lose force for the trees. These are decisions that we need to consider and pray through and work through, and it goes far beyond food or, or, or whatever. What I'm saying is that our actions matter. And in this case, you see people that unwittingly, uh, they, they brought about their destruction because they, their choices they were making, they were doing what they wanted to do. Even many of them, I'm sure, making choices that they, they felt were not having any real impact on the others. So this is really only just about me. But our actions have an impact. Noah's actions mattered, on the other hand. Noah was called a righteous man, and because of the way he lived his life, his family was also spared. While we may assume that they too were righteous, the text doesn't actually say that. It only ascribes the title of righteous to Noah. Our negative actions have an impact, but our positive actions also have a profound impact. Never underestimate the power of doing good. Never under underestimate the power that it has on the world around us. Our, to our families, our neighbors, our co-workers. There's also an integrity factor here. To do what is right and just even when the world looks and laughs or when no one is looking. The second thing to consider is that God always preserves a remnant. I don't want us to walk away based on that last point of thinking that this is just simply about moralism and doing good because we all know if you've been around um, church any length of time and especially this church that it is about so much more. There is something significant about God's choice to save anyone. That as creator and judge over humanity, God didn't have to, but in love chose to pre preserve a remnant. That God stubbornly over and over again chooses humanity. Even when humanity seems like a lost cause, God chooses there is a beauty in exploring God's choice to redeem what is broken 
rather than totally wipe the slate clean. And we see this over and over again in the scriptures. It, it reminds me, and there's a, a picture here, there is this a particular type of pottery um, called kinzuki. If you've never seen this before, it is where you take a broken piece of pottery and you use sort of this gold dust lacquer to bring all of the pieces back together. And the results are stunning and beautiful. But the other net effect is that it's actually stronger than it was before. This is a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Amen. God is in the business of redeeming what we would see and many would see as irredeemable. We can think of that more broadly to ourselves. If God looks at the world and says, I will choose you, I will redeem and restore what seems broken and irreparable. I choose you. How can we carry, how can we carry that same spirit to the people and world around us? I think this looks like never counting someone out. Maybe some of you have people in your lives that you are praying for, that you are seeking um, to see God work in a profound way in their life. I think this looks like never, ever giving up, never counting someone out. To not give up hope that God wants to do something profound in that person's life, whether it's a situation where they're making choices that are just terrible or maybe they've walked away from the Lord, whatever that looks like, to know that God hasn't given up on us, so we should not give up on those people. It also looks like treating each other's brokenness with love and with grace. In fact, treating our own brokenness with love and grace. The violence and corruption of Noah's day meant people were living completely without regard to the people around them. The way of God, on the other hand, shows us to regard each other as more important than ourselves. To love people not only when they do good, but even when out of their brokenness they do and say things that harm. This is a way of embodying the saving grace that God offers and extends to us. Lastly, let's consider the person and work of Jesus in light of the flood and in light of the cross. This is so significant that we land here and end here because this is the crux of it all. At the very end of Noah's narrative, if you read through to the end of chapter 9, we get a little glimpse that the world is still not perfect. Nothing, nothing has ultimately changed Noah plants a vineyard. It's a bit of a weird story again. Noah plants a vineyard. He creates some wine to enjoy and actually ends up getting a little drunk. Drinks a bit too much. He passes out in his tent, naked, awkward. Um, and we get a little bit of a subtle throwback to Genesis 3 here. He eats of the fruit and the net result is nakedness and shame. <laughs> so Noah's son, Ham, he discovers his father's nakedness and he... Uh, kind of looks and he goes to his brother's like, hey, dad's naked in there. And kind of like, like almost like scoffs at it, basically. He didn't do right by him. He dishonored his father in that way. So then his brothers, doing the right thing, they go and they, and they cover their father. And again, there's a little callback to Genesis 3 of God covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So right after this, we have no illusion that everything has been fixed. The problem of the human condition is still embedded in our hearts. In Noah, we only get a foretaste 
of God's saving heart. Noah is a type of savior, but he is not the ultimate savior. For that, we have to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Noah, all die but one remnant. But in Jesus, one dies for all. In Noah, the world is punished and judged for their sin, but in Jesus, he bears our sin and punishment on the cross. In Noah, the waters bring about death and destruction, but in Jesus, the waters bring life and rebirth through baptism. In Noah, people are given what they deserve, but in Jesus, we do not have to to bear the very thing that we do deserve. So may we be confident in not our own goodness or righteousness, but in the goodness and righteousness of Jesus, who lived a sinful life, who died to bring an end to that sin and suffering, and who was raised to life by the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit that breathed new life over the earth, that receded the floods. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave that same spirit dwells in all followers of Jesus. It's a profound and wonderful and beautiful thing. So by the power of the Spirit, may we live in that power, the power of the risen Jesus. May we live as people no longer slaves to death and judgment and condemnation, but as people of light, as people who walk in the light and walk with God. That is my hope for us. That is my prayer as we, as we go about our week, as we do the things God has called us to do, that we walk in that spirit, that we do not walk in the same way of the people of Noah's day, people condemned, but we stand as people loved and forgiven. Let's pray. God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. God, we thank you for this text, even though it is challenging, even though it might rub us the wrong way, even though it might kind of spark some uncomfortable feelings in us. Lord, would you help us to press in? Would you help us to lean in? And God, I I do pray that we would ultimately focus on your cross and the love that was poured out there for us to cover condemnation and judgment and sin. God, would we land there in our hearts? Would we allow ourselves to just be gripped by that truth and that reality? By your Spirit, can we just live in light of that this week? Amen.